the England soccer and footy and the athletes there are becoming much more sophisticated and really pushing all of their performance staffs. And they're pushing on nutrition and they're pushing on recovery and mindset because they're realizing that not only can they play better, but they play longer. And that might only mean millions of pounds to those athletes. And maybe they don't hate it as much at the same time. And they, they come out intact, right? So that uh-huh. it's not like, hey, you, you know, it's really cool that we, uh, you fought the Lions in the arena, but now we're going to give your bodies up to them too. You know, we, don't, we shouldn't have to do that. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of MindsetRx and your host. And I believe athletes have to learn to rewire, regulate and dominate. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. That's how I respond to it. Us athletes like to identify as hard chargers. We're tougher, more resilient, and more tenacious than regular Joes. As such, we pride ourselves on how we can keep on pushing when others would have stopped. Like I've said before, this is an essential skill to develop for any athlete and any human. If you gave up at the first sign of discomfort, you wouldn't get very far in life. However, your body and your mind aren't made for an endless grind. Speaking from an evolutionary perspective, we were built to work very, very hard, then rest completely and fully for a long, long time. Let's dissect this a little bit. We can break this problem down into three components. Rewire, regulate, and dominate. Rewiring is the process of changing your story. The story getting in the way of most athletes is the hustle and grind mentality. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I've got to outwork the competition. Or maybe a fear trap of, oh my God, everyone's working harder than me and I'll fail if I let myself rest. Regulate is the physical side of the mindset equation. Too many athletes we speak to spend the days constantly switched on, pushing, grinding, forcing their body into the ground, which is fine if there's ample recovery too. Even your downtime isn't really downtime. The hours you spend on your phone are not the rest you think they are. Your body and mind still perceive this as work. Finally, dominate. This is on the competition floor, when we're grinding instead of flowing. Great performances don't come from a place of constant grind. They come from putting yourself in a place of effortless effort. Without these three components, Minds fill with negativity and bodies just don't perform. To perform at your best by harnessing your full mindset, rewire, regulate and dominate. In this conversation with Kelly Strutt, we discuss the value of putting the brakes on in forced downtime in order to put yourself in a better mindset place. We also discuss the value of having fun, changing warm-ups, the greatest mindset challenge Kelly has ever spaced and ever spaced, ever faced, and a ton more besides. So enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with the wonderful Kelly Storetz. So Kelly, welcome to the show, man. It's it's a real pleasure to have you here. Massive pleasure. Or as we say in the UK and, and the surrounding, pleasure. 
nailed it. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Um, talk to me about growing up in Germany and ski racing. Ooh, I think it's a really interesting aspect of my understanding. I'm a little bit of an outsider all the time when I came back to the United States. Uh, I was about seven, almost seven, when my mom, who was a professor, was like, I'm a single parent. I have these friends in who live in Garmisch, right in the mountains. And so the dollar was really good at the time. She packed me up to have an adventure. She had just defended a PhD and I was a young kid. And we fell in love with this little hamlet of a, uh, of a little Bavarian you know, village. And it was really easy there. And, and the 80s in Germany and the 80s in Europe were definitely just a different time. Um, and, you know, I was exposed to such good sports and such good out, out recreation. We always carried a backpack that had, you know, a full change of clothes. We might be swimming. We might need a, a rain slicker. You know, you might, we might ride our mountain bikes to Austria. We ski raced. But what was really important about that time where I've just freedom was self-sufficiency. We had to le- literally know how to drink from the hose and be gone all day, take care of ourselves, self-soothe. But also we, I developed this idea that whoever could do the most sports was the best athlete. Whoever could pick up the new skill the fastest was the best athlete. And so we really valued sort of being a polymath, you know, and in in, in competency across all domains. So it was great that you're a great football player, but you also, can you ski? Can you cross-country ski? Can you kayak? Do you mountain bike? You know, those were all the things. We were in constant play. Why was that so important to you? I don't know, because... um, I suspect because, you know, that was w- the, the currency that we valued, that the person who was the most competent uh, really could have the most fun. And we just always were, you know, pushing each other in so many different domains. And, you know, one of the things that happened is that we began a beginner's mind. So I think, I think what was fun about that for us is that we got to, you know, at a certain age, like now we're kayaking you know, or now we're racing mountain bikes, or now it's, you know, we're old enough <clears throat> that it's a new skiing discipline, we're skiing giant slalom, or, or, you know, super G. And one of the things that happens is, is that we got the chance to, you know, could you integrate all those skills, and then, you know, test ourselves. And it was never um, a mindset of, um, I'm better than you, ego, it was always about play, come play, come be part of our, the, the amount of pick up soccer games I got into in Germany was insane. I'd be the only American kid. I'd ride my bike past. I'd watch a little game. People would w- wave me over. And all of a sudden, poop, I'm playing footy with, you know, strangers. And that kind of openness, spontaneous play, I think we've, we've lost that narrative. It's so yeah. formal now. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like I've recently had to just go back to playing and taking off a schedule. Like I've realized it's like Monday through Wednesday, I train every day and it's the, always these formats and Thursday I have a rest day and Saturday Sunday. And I was like, that is not the way that I enjoy training. That rigidity is just like, it's, it's not there. So it's like, and now I'm going to play a bit of golf here and there, um, get back to some jujitsu, like get choked out way too often. Yeah. It, it, you know, what we see is, um, you know, even if we go to the founder of CrossFit who said, you know, learn and play new sports, right? And I think one of the things that's happened, and this ties into, you know, being a child, um, we used to tell everyone, play as many different sports as you can, don't specialize, and then you can specialize when you're older. <clears throat> and what we saw was we had kids who came in, up who were like that, but had fundamental gaps in their formal movement training. Didn't have formal ballet, didn't have Olympic lifting, didn't have kettlebells, didn't have a language, sort of a reference language of teaching more formal movements. 
this is classic ballet before we go do modern dance. And what ends up happening is then those inefficiencies sometimes bit people nasty. They could have been a little bit stronger, a little bit more durable. They could have been a little more skilled and, and exposure to things that sometimes you just can't expose swimmers to with more swimming. And what we realized is that all that, that model, play, 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 plus a little bit of formal movement, you're really capable and competent. We can look at energy systems. We can look at strengths, right? But then all of a sudden we became hyper-specialized, as, as happens, because I think it's a feature of us sort of be, you know, the internet breaking down walls, suddenly having access to so many strength communities and, and really advancing strength conditioning game besides like old Russian, you know, literature that was translated, all that. Um, and so subsequently what we saw was we had hyper-specialized kids and, and athletes who played one sport who we had to, because they didn't grow up playing a whole bunch of other things, we had to do even more formal movement training. In fact, today's kid needs more formal movement training than, 10 years ago and an order of magnitude more than 20 years ago in terms of teaching kids to do handstands and jump and land and roll and play. And, and so what we've seen is that these, these kids have come through these programs and are really good at their sport, but aren't developing enough capacity. And as a feature of that, we've also seen adults like you become, or myself, it's easy to become entrained, very formal movement in the gym. And the gym is a really great place to test. It's really, we say it makes the invisible visible. We can really understand what's happening. And yet we're not, now we're not going outside. Now I'm trying to recreate every rotational plane with a medicine ball in the context of training. And I'm spending two hours in the gym, three hours in the gym. How many days a week? How, like where, and we've forgotten that the reason we were in the gym in the first place was to go train and play. And it's important, I think, for people to recognize that it's easy to say, hey, I, I got better because I added a kilo on the bar. That's really cool. But unless the shot put is going further, unless you're a faster runner, unless you're better at jujitsu, what's the point of that thing? Is it just comp body composition? Is that what we're lying to ourselves about? Is that is the current gym culture just about aesthetics? Cool. Let's just own that. But if we're serious about using the gym for what I think what its possibility is, is to make us durable and to highlight positions and techniques and skills that we then transfer back into real sport. Yeah. And then somewhere along the line as well, your mental approach and like the pure enjoyment of it just fades as well. Like that's what I found for myself anyway. It's like, it just becomes linear. It becomes unexpressive. It becomes unenjoyable. Um, and like, it's, yeah, it, it is so much more fun. Well, for me personally, I'm speaking for myself, that, that, that phase of skill acquisition, especially at the beginning, you just learn your mind is just like thinking about oh. it the whole time. It seems like the, the best thing for, for a human being. It is it, early on. I mean, we always laugh. Uh, one of my friends says, Hey, I'm all about those beginner games, yeah. you know? And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, when you thought about it, I was like, that is really what I want too. I just want the massive acceleration. Look how good I am. I, I couldn't spell the word snowboard and today I'm snowboarding. You know, that is that learning is so addictive. I'm listening to this book right now um, called Sand Talk by Tyler Yunkaporta, who is an indigenous Australian writer, thinker, philosopher. And what's really interesting is that he basically, the summation of the book, and it's really wonderful, Sand Talk, it's about how we can use indigenous ways of thinking to solve complex modern problems, pattern recognition, interrelationships. It's, it's really remarkable. But we have completely jumped the shark on how kids learn and how best to acquire skills. And that is through 
interrelations, that is through play, that is through joy. And the things you just described are the reasons it's so fun to initially get in there. Then it's work. And look, at some point, you're, you're a modern football player playing in the Premier League. We need to get some work done. It's not very sexy. That's very different. That's like, I take this vitamin and I'm doing this thing. That's not the best way to learn skills. That's developing physiology. And that's cool. But no wonder we burn all the kids out by the time they're 18. The, the, the research around kids playing and continue to play sports past like 16 to 18 is abysmal. We have nearly 100% participation and it windows down to like 15%. And so we really have to look at, is the gym class really the best place to acquire these skills? Well, in the way we're currently teaching it, no. <clears throat> so humans play and humans learn together and they love to pick up skills and challenge. And suddenly you can see why getting people to compete for a point, which is dumb. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a huge fan of competitions and workouts who can go the fastest and do the most dumb work. But I am thinking that if you and I are going next to each other, we're always going to have more fun suddenly an informal game, right? A spin class next to someone where you're actually competing wattage, that's super cool, or climbing on the mountain bike. So we have to recapture that and reintegrate that play. And one of the best lessons for me is teaching my and coaching my daughters because I'm like, look, they're water polo savages. They are such good water polo players. But... <clears throat> I have to balance where, how am I going to get this training in so I can protect them and keep an eye on their internal rotation, do all the formal things, and yet make that so fun and such an enjoyable experience they don't mind going out and working with their dad. That it's like we're messing around or doing handstands or listening to music, da da da, where, you know what I mean, where we get sidetracked and we have just lost that narrative because we know we can get so many gains of physiology but we're forgetting the, the whole thing. How can I better relate to you as a human? How do I better relate to my environment? How am I using the gym to facilitate this thing? And the gym culture potentially is really great. It's a really rich tribe, comma, not always. What do you do for play at the moment? Like what's your, what's your skill acquisition? Uh, from a hyper-technical dorky thing I'm working on, I'm trying to teach myself to juggle with pins. But uh, I use it as a warm-up because the number of times I drop a juggling pin and have to bend over and pick it up, it's insane how many hinges and squats I can get done in 20 <laughs> minutes of, of play. And I'm hot and sweaty and frustrated. Um, I just had a lifetime PR last night. I actually, for a moment, was looking. I was like, look, look at me. I'm juggling. And then I you know, went through a window. <laughs> Always um, it's like meditation. I hey, am, I'm meditating. I, yeah, hey, look at you. Shoot. Um, we, my wife and I are huge mountain bikers. Um, I, you know, I've been riding my bike and I racing mountain bikes for a long time, but we have really fallen in love again with, with, uh, mountain biking in a really significant way. And I think that's, you know, I love to paddle. I've been a professional paddler for a long time. So that skill set's pretty stable. I'm going boating next weekend. Uh, I have a brand new kayak. I can't wait to get out and, and play up on the river, but the, the mountain biking and all the things around that are really interesting right now. So I'm continuing to play that. Yeah. All those things are so, um, there's such a difference in depth of field, like your focus, um, when like you find that, that plane, when you're outdoors and you kind of just, your pupils dilate, it seems like, and they kind of, or they actually constrict, don't they, to let more, more, um, more light in a wider lens. It seems like that also yeah, well, just you know, outside. Well, I, you really are hitting on something and it's coming back to this, this common theme 
like look at the kids at Z Health or the there's a really great German company, Neurokinetic Health, and there's so much eye tracking that we're needing to do with people, and that you've seen the pencil push up, and that like suddenly. You know, stimulation through your, you know, optic nerve and changing, you know, and doing some saccades or some convergence of your eyes really does change how your body perceives safety or threat or opens up. And I'm like, why do I have to do that formally? Which begets the question, why am I doing any of this formally, right? If I ride my mountain bike and I'm looking at my, you know, how far I've gone and then refocusing or looking at a route and then looking far, aren't I getting plenty of that? Or if I'm actually playing a game where I have to catch something? I mean, do I really need to then do more formal movement training with my eyes? Maybe not. But what they found out was, wow, we're seeing people three feet, you know, a meter from their, from their screen and not doing any diversity. And suddenly it's a game again where I, exactly what we're talking about. I'm having to add these things back in instead of solving these things with a movement game, actual activity or skill. Yeah. So I was, I spent like the two years before I moved back to the UK living in uh, BC and I was outdoors the whole time, like ski mountaineering, mountain biking, climbing. And I was just like, I just, things felt really good. And I came back and it's like, right, time to focus on the business and make sure it's working. And man, like the, I, I remember looking out, I've got some trees over there. And I was like, can't actually focus on them anymore. Like it's completely changed. And like, I noticed a, such a difference in my mood as well. And then I was like, I need to be outdoors more. Hence why bit of golf bit of like loads more running some cycling like just changing up like into that again it's the playfulness it's the kind of the like the newbie games as well which i like yeah i live for those um but it's um yeah it's, it's fascinating to see that the play and the outdoors effect on mentality and general health one of the things that i really like to do um there's a coach named dane i think his last name is miller dane miller and he's ghost-faced mila on the, uh, on the socials, but he jumps in and tries everyone's programming. And he's a, he's a monster. He's a, uh, a prodigy of Bondarchuk. He's an Olympic coach. He's just a, a mutant human being, works with a lot of throwers and track athletes, but also I, I love him. I see him like, he's like, I'm going to do Joel Steven stuff for a while. And then I'm going to play over here for a while. I'm going to try this. And one of the things that we've gotten from the internet, of course, is just really lazy tribalism. No, I'm a hard style swing kettlebell swinger high bar low bar back squat whatever whatever floats your boat there because it gives you meaning that's totally fine but it's a great place to use your warm-up as a chance of play and discovery so you see something on the internet and you're like wow this is a really good coach playing around something i wonder what that feels like go feel it go explain use your 20 minutes like i am a constant player and developer and my warm-ups are a place where i try new skills and i try things out and it gives me a chance because look at some point you're going to need to put something off the ground and put it over your head and breathe hard those things are not negotiable i mean that is if you want to be durable and actually be athletic and not just use movement as entertainment which is what a lot of the internet is full of now you know it's like um instead of going to dance class i'm gonna to go to this exercise class right or you know i'm gonna do this you know animal flow uh, not throwing shade on anyone i'm just saying that there's a lot of movement which is great but it's not going to get us to the olympics or get us to world champions i like to have the idea of a lot of play in life a lot of play and warm-up balance play mess around discovery but there are some more formal things for adults that are appropriate that get us over the line in the least amount of time, right? Like I, I kind of feel that way. And yet I'm still saying to you, you can do whatever you want, whatever, however you want to express yourself in the gym. It's really none of my business. I don't really care. But if you're trying to make a claim that your system is the best and it doesn't develop other people's system, doesn't develop your capacity in other systems, then maybe it's less effective than you think. So coming back to our central tenant, I like to take my training 
and see how durable and transferable it is in someone else's ideas, ideology. So if I'm going to do Ben Patrick stuff, who's a friend, I should be able to do all the stuff without having to do any of the stuff. Right. And that's what I want to be able to do. I want to be able to say, well, I choose this modality or this style of training, but it's not limiting my growth or potential. And again, now I'm just using the gym as a way of saying, can I pick up a new sport quickly? Can I quickly adapt my skills and physiology to a new task? Which is ultimately what I think we should be doing as humans, collecting skills. People love um, clinging onto a tribe and to finding that security. Sure, we need like, it. Yeah, this is, yeah, exactly. But there's also like the kind of, the the lack of being willing to stand by yourself and go and do something that's like kind of stand outside, especially when everyone is um, con- not conforming gets like a bad rap, but like kind of trying to find security, safety, stability from a, a social st- structure. Like you always seem to be from my observation anyway, and what is basically very, very limited because I've seen you on Instagram, I've read your books and that's basically it. We've actually chatted once before on a previous podcast, um, but that's been that's been it. But I, it seems like you're willing to kind of stand outside the crowd of it, like kind of um, think for yourself and have like hold your opinions. Did that like you seem to have a unique upbringing as well? Do you reckon those are correlated? Possibly being an outsider. Um, the other thing was uh, for me, the way I learn is through pattern recognition. So that if you ask me, like, pin me down, like, Kelly, what is your one true gift? What is your superpower? I'm like, it's pattern recognition. I understand how things relate and how systems connect. That's how I understand the world. And it's really interesting. I'm like, if you, again, we're back to this relationship thing. No thing is in isolation. I'm a systems thinker. I need to think about how these things connect and how they interrelate, which turned out to be in physio and strength conditioning really, really useful because I can quickly grok and understand what you're trying to do and the tools, you're, the tactics you're doing to try to, to do it, or the tactics you're using, maybe not you know, solving a problem that you're trying to solve. So what's great about that view then is that suddenly everyone is fair game. Everyone has ideas that integrate, synthesize, um, you know, all Buckminster Fuller, the thinker is like, hey, look, all systems that are true and correct are mutually accommodating. We have different language, we have different jargon, we have different tactics, but the principles are the same. So where we have these inter- moments of interference are genuine interests of discussion. Why do you believe why you believe that? Is it your history because you came out of a system that believed that? Is it because, uh, or you come to believe that because you tried to solve a problem and weren't able to solve that problem and so you got stuck here? So for me, you know, I think it, being in the strength conditioning community is so fun because there's so many ways, so many roads to, you know, Rome. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, coach Ma, Chinese Olympic lifting coach. I, I adore him. Um, you know, I'm friends with Dmitry Klokov. I watch how he lifts. Travis Mash is a good friend of mine. Dave Spitz is a really good friend of mine. Coach Bergner is what I have these like just incredible Olympic lifting coaches and friendships. Olympic lifting, they all have different styles and different means of training and different, but it doesn't mean that I have to choose one. If I'm an athlete, I'm like, okay, I'm in your programming system. But what I'm trying to understand is how are these things alike? How are they different? And which one gives me the best outcome and which has the best understanding and linkage to other things. So, you know, once again, I think it's interesting for me to go ahead and continue to play and be interested. And that's why I particularly find it offensive when the only way people feel like they need to get attention is to shout other people down. I just think that's, I mean, I just, it's so boring. 
with that in mind, tell me about your least favorite person in strength. Um, <laughs> so when you, um, what were you up to when you realized that your mobility physiotherapy was the, the thing that you were going to pursue? Oh man. You know, I, uh, was an injured athlete. So I paddled on the U S canoe and kayak team and injured and injured myself through an overuse injury. Just had, I had a, basically a brachial plexus traction injury. So I injured the nerves come out of my neck and that was because I was missing internal rotation. And I was a mouth breather and I had all these, I mean, just a, I paddled canoe on the right side of the boat 11 to 13 times a week. It was just sort of a disaster, right? Like, why would I do that? Why would I just be so asymmetrical? And in retrospect, I'm like, Oh, that was completely of my making. But that ended my, you know, my hand went numb, couldn't turn my head. And that was my How first would you experience. Be mm, 22, 23, yeah. 23, 24, maybe something like that. Um, perhaps 24. And, um, you know, that was, uh, that was definitely brutal, you know. And um, I went down the physio hole where you suddenly are like, give me the cortisone, give me the prednisone, mm -hmm. give me the traction, give me the ac acupuncture, let's do the massage, let's do MRI. I tried everything. I was like, I will be willing to give you my kidney so that I can just get back to doing what I want to do instead of understanding everything else. And at the time, not only was I paddling that much, 11 workouts a week, I was also in the gym and also riding my bike and also swimming and doing zero recovery. No one was looking at my positions. The only thing we valued was was I one second clock faster on the clock? Yes or no. Mm. And that sort of is like, and I've said this before, Hey, I, the mentality of like, I made you some toast, but I burned down your house, but isn't the toast good. It's the best toast you ever had, but there's a wake of destruction in the pathway of making that toast. Mm. So, um, I discovered I needed to go to physio because I thought I could solve this problem and there had to be a better way. And I was always interested in how the body worked, Inter, you know how to nutrition and some of that was because i was an athlete in the late 90s early 2000s and trying there was it was the dark ages you know um i've told the story before but i was like you know i think plyometrics i'm not really sure what that is but medicine ball work seems to be important in these other communities the internet is really we're pre-internet days which i think is shocking to people and i got a book at the library i found called it was by tutor bampa and it was like medicine ball training and basically with stick figures with medicine balls, just folding left and right and rotating. And I asked my girlfriend's parents at the time for a medicine ball for Christmas. And they got me a huge medicine ball, like 18 pounder, 20 pounder. And then my best friend and I, who was also on the team, we went to the gym and for an hour we played with medicine ball and we were so crippled. We were crippled for days. Like we couldn't rotate. We couldn't flex. We couldn't twist. We couldn't paddle. And I was like, Whoa. And my, my friend got so mad at us because he's like, dude, like we messed ourselves up. And I'm like, we didn't know. And there was nothing in the book about how to on-ramp or what's appropriate volume or to get started. We just started in the front of the book and went to the end of the book. You know, like we should do each one of these for a while and see how it feels. And just imagine just all the exposure that we had with that medicine ball when we were young fit kids. And so, um, you know, I think because I was always interested in these things, physio made sense to me. When I got into physio school, I discovered that the language of rehab and the language of injury had nothing to do with the language of training. And that's when we, I started to run this gap because I was, I owned a gym while I was in physio school. That's when I opened my gym and was suddenly working with populations, helping people learn the language of squatting and pressing and Olympic lifting kettlebells and, and people couldn't even get into these shapes. 
And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like we can wait till you're just injured and broken and then go to physio and get you out of pain and then come back and you still haven't re reconciled your position or improved your technique or loaded. You've just done this babysitting over here in the physio land. And that's when I saw a real opportunity to basically create this, you know, sort of performance therapy idea where we were looking and using the formal movement language of the strength and conditioning centers as a diagnostic tool in real time to see if people could maintain their positions. And what I realized is that the physio world wasn't about shapes, it wasn't about positions, and it wasn't even about exercise. It was really about being compensated for pain or no pain or helping people babysit people appropriately so they didn't injure themselves during a, a healing model. That was really what physio was. And it wasn't on the side of how do we help you snatch or create this, this Olympic record or run faster or do all of those things, which turned out to be a really nice, uh, nice life. I, I fell into this thing and sort of realized I wasn't ever going to be over on that side. And suddenly we realized, man, there's a lot we can move into the domain of the coach and the domain of the athlete that has nothing to do with physio. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step -step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now, let's get on with the show. You really are a systems thinker, aren't you? Like that's that's the way you see things. Like you can see the the holes picturing up in these systems as you're going through. It seems it seems obvious. You know, sometimes yeah. when you're in it up close, it's difficult to. And I think as a coach working in a team, you have to be thinking this way. You know, the physios, you know, keep coming back around to this thing called like the biopsychosocial model, right? Mm -hmm. And like and and you can see why that's a reaction because the physio community wedged themselves up against the medical model and the medical system for reimbursement and, you know, to, for, to be, get bona fides and to fee, be legitimate in the eyes of that, you know, modern medicine. And it was all about mechanics and tissues, and, right? And there was no conversation about the human or the brain and the body or the body and the brain or the mind and the brain. And for me, that stuff was so obvious because if you're an athlete or you're a coach of athletes, you have to talk about sleep and nutrition and stress and mindset if you want someone to be worth a crap while they compete and so if you don't feel safe in your team it doesn't matter how fit you are you're going to suck and so suddenly i was like well, why are you just discovering that oh you're discovering that because you actually aren't working with real teams and real people you're working with a snapshot in this 30-minute session inside a, a wall with a low ceiling and padded floor and you're getting paid no matter what the outcome is you know, there's always someone coming. So there, I realized that there was a lot of type one errors in the physio and the physios, you know, suddenly were like, well, you know, pain is in the brain. We're like, well, no crap. Have you ever been to the gym? It's always painful. There's always something going on. You ever done a sport? Like you're always hurt and always managing something. We're always working around something or regressing or progressing something. That's because that's sports and athletics. And so we already had a really different conversation around pain, for example, and that we didn't see pain as the limiting factor of the only conversation. Oh, you don't have any pain? Go on with your life. It was always about, oh, you have pain and you have to win a world championship. How are we going to solve those things? Who owns that? And how are we going to manage that? 
you know, that's a very different, very, very different set of conversations. And one, I think that is scalable. This leads me really nicely onto the, you, you kind of spoke around it there is, do we know much about the effects of mental state on mobility? Is there a correlation? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, let me ask you, if you're super nervous, how well do you move? Poorly. 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 So, Just like my golf yesterday. Yeah. Pressure. Isn't that and interesting? Like and tightness. How about this? Go ahead and um, have a baby, then go run a marathon, then mm-hmm. take a red eye plane, and then let's go play golf again. And just let me know how that goes for you. You're going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just described you being a professional athlete, having to manage all those things, right? I mean, that's welcome to the game where you're like, holy moly, it's not even about who's the best athlete. It's who can manage the most variables and be the freshest in that moment. So a lot of the things we do as coaches is say, well, what can we control for? How many of these, you know, detractions, these, these vampires, can we, can we, you know, account for so that the athlete can just show up and be the athlete. Like we just want it so that we can take the best athletes in the world and actually give them an opportunity to show their virtuosity and their hyper creativity and their, what's it called? Uh, uh, transient hypofrontality. That's the, the, the idea of flow state. And, you know, we want to be able to control as many of those things as we can, nutrition, preparation, strength, conditioning, all of those things so that you can just go and do what you do. If you're in pain, if you're stressed, you know, how, how are your tissues handling that? So now we're thinking at a systems level, wow, you're eating like a, a spoiled brat. You're drinking a ton to make yourself feel better just because that's self-soothing. That's a legitimate strategy. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're not sleeping. You're not eating right. You're drinking. What's going on with your tissues? And so suddenly we're at this idea where, hey, mobilization and mobility and having access to your position which by the way, these normative shapes are the same shapes and ranges of motion that every doctor, physical therapist on the planet agrees with. So the fact that your ankle doesn't flex is an anomaly. It's like a disease. It's a strange state. What do you mean your hip doesn't move? Like, don't you think that's weird? If your car doesn't t- go into third gear, isn't that a weird thing? So what we suddenly realized, well, there's two ways in. There's this top-down approach. Do I feel safe here? Do I have skill here? How's my sleep, nutrition, all of those things, but also bottom-up approach can be what's going on with the actual tissue. Do I have a stiff capsule? How does influence, how does hydration affect that? I have a stiff capsule. How does habitus affect that? I have a stiff joint capsule. What about it, previous injury history? What about loading? And so what you realize is that, man, there's two, you know, we have to address from the top down, the brain, we have to address from the bottom up, and both are valid approaches, and both will be incomplete approaches unless you're thinking about them both. There's a two-way which conversation. Is why, yeah. Which is why when we mobilize, for example, we're always working and talking about breath and we're doing a ton of isometrics to get the brain and the breath involved as much as we can so that we can influence this, how the brain is perceiving what's going on with the body. Yeah. So when I first started doing, like getting properly into mobility and it's all thanks to you um, because your like the supple leopard was the, the go-to resource at that point in my life. Um, I noticed now looking back that my self-talk in those moments when I was doing mobility in a public space was actually kind of, it was off-putting. It was something that was getting in the way, like before mobility was as kind of widely accepted as it is now. Um, and like it's, it's really weird. Like, and that actually, the effect that had on my body, the constriction, the tension, and it's probably something to do with anxiety as well and all these kind of things growing together. Sure. Um, but man, like 
there is that kind of it's a two-way conversation i think like like breath and thought sure i i, I like that and you know what when i define mo- mobility because again we're we bandy about words and let me just tell you what i mean mm-hmm. is do you have the technique and the control to express what your body's supposed to do and that can be man my body doesn't perceive this as safe that's part of it, right? That That's part of that movement control system that you don't have access to. You're unskilled. You don't know how to create a stable grip as you're grabbing someone's gi. Just, just your elbows flaring wide. You're going to, you're someone's going to break your grip, right? You don't have the technique and the skills, right? It's not just about who has the biggest engine. It's about how you can connect that engine to the car, how the tires, right? What, what did uh, Shelby say is never about, you know, it's not about too much power. It's about not enough traction. Right. And so we need to make sure that the whole system is 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 on board from a movement perspective. How do we translate? That's why it can't just be doesn't matter how you move. Well, certain movements don't translate as effectively or generate much force or give you as much movement opportunity. Rounding your back in a deadlift. That's not the reason why you shouldn't round your back because you think it's injury. You, you heard me say that and people are like, ooh, injury. But I think that that's a crappy position because you can't breathe and you can't change directions and it's a dead end. So if you teach yourself the only way I can lift something up off the ground or jump explosively is to round my back, then that's what's going to happen because that's what you practice. And that just doesn't translate to VO2 max or, you know, acquisition of skills, even though you've gotten really good at picking something heavy off the ground. Super cool. And big glutes, awesome. Don't get me wrong. But the second part of that is do you have the raw tissue extensibility? Do you just have the tissues that can do that? And it's not always about tension or tone. Your brain isn't always protecting you. Sometimes you're what we call stiff. You know, and stiffness is not the same thing as tightness. If you don't, if you're weak or you don't have control, your brain is going to create that movement solution for you. No problem. Here's an example. Um, When people um, have an injury to their cerebellum sometimes, uh, it can, they can lead to a, a condition called cerebral palsy that people have heard of before. And people with cerebral palsy are totally cognitively intact. They just have altered motor control aspects, right? Their movement control system is up, but they still figure out ways to exercise. They still figure out, well, I have a ton of friends who are incredible athletes with cerebral palsy and their brains just figure out ways of creating stability. So that's an example of if they, you'll see someone with cerebral palsy, a, a typical walk is they'll turn the foot out like a duck slam the knee and internally rotate the hip. Suddenly that ankle is stable, the knee is stable, the hip is stable. So the brain shuts down degrees of freedom for aspects of control. Boy, that sounds like you under a heavy front squat load, doesn't it? Where I don't know how to create stability. Oh my, my, I don't have good trunk control. I'm going to either overextend and slam my facet joints into extension, or I'm just going to round until I can't round anymore and be in that position. Neither of those positions end up being very skilled. Neither of those positions should necessarily cause pain or even trauma. In the long haul, working around your physiology or not optimizing your physiology is a recipe for potential pain. More importantly, disuse or your, you know, for joints, if you're always weight bearing on the outside of your joint, that surface is designed to have the whole surface using, not just a piece of the surface, right? Then you add in sleep and hydration and all these things. What we see is that, or even genetics, you don't express good collagen synthesis through your genetics. And lo and behold, that's a mechanism for an Achilles that's not working great, is unhealthy, and then gets loaded at high speed when you became menopausal and boof, right? All of a sudden we have a, a, a fundamental tissue breakdown. So, if we don't start to look at this whole thing, then what we're going to say is, 
it's it's we're going to turn the whole thing into apologetics, which is, well, humans are just fragile and there's no good way or better way to express force or to be efficient. This is why we have to look at our elite movers and our elite movement traditions as ways of understanding what really good human expressions of human physiology and human output is. And so even in physio, we're always looking at biomotor expression and notice that that's biomotor means sort of brain body and expression is output lifting, running, sprinting, cutting, speed. We are always looking at biomotor expression as the pinnacle. I do these things, I make these choices because it gives me more capacity. I do these things and make these choices because when I have more capacity, I also have more durability, I potentially have less pain, I have more access to breath, right? And I have more skills that transfer and suddenly I have more fun. And that is why we, we have to get beyond, well, I got this done in the gym. Great, let's go over to the stand-up surf. How's that foot pressure working for you? You know, oh, you just got your ass kicked on the pitch. Wonder why, you know? And um, that's why... I think the gym and gym culture potentially confuses this conversation around sport and why we want to keep putting and testing our thinking around sport. And when you come into sport practices and you're working with Nick Gill of the All Blacks, why he's a strength coach there, why does he believe what he believes? Why are these coaches making these choices? Because their job is on the line. They have to get good output from the athletes. They have to account for top-down, bottom-up approaches. They have to look at skills that end up being durable. Bob's your uncle. Is there like is part of part of when I th- I think about mobility and part of when I hear you you talk about it and everyone else talk about it and their own um, definitions of it coming to that as well. But it seems like there's there can be a lot to think about and there can be a lot to consider. Yeah. Is there like a, a hierarchy of where you would start? So here's your baseline. Here's like where you go when you're a bit more advanced. For example, is it like? Um, movement patterns to begin with and then is it movement patterns on the correct tension and full th- through full range is there like a place to start and then where does like i don't know a foam roller come into that or right <laughs> yeah um you know the first order of business always is is the mover people are still moving and so if you're never ever putting your arms over your head we can mobilize for your arms over your head but until you actually do that a lot your brain's never going to value that maintain that keep an eye on that. How do we know? Because we've run this experiment for billions of years where people don't squat and their hips get tight and they have hip replacements or they have hip pain or they can't get up and down off the ground without using their hand. Whatever ends up being the solution. Loss of capacity. Was it, was it, why, why can't you flex your hip up? So the first thing that we can do always is make sure that we're moving to the best of our ability. So we put coaching and movement theory is the first order of business. So even if you can't squat below parallel, who cares? That's where you can squat. Let's squat there today. Let's not say, let's not squat as you have perfect range of motion and excellent movement control because that's horse crap and that's not how the world works anyway. People are going to go out and play pickleball. Oh, I went to my physio. She said, don't squat, but I'm going to go out here and play this pickleball or play this, you know, jump in this sport or you know, do kick turns. It doesn't matter what it is. You're going to use that stuff. So the first thing I think is, is, hey, do we have a movement practice, which is part of a physical practice where I begin to at least expose myself to these positions? And suddenly you're like, well, yoga makes a lot of sense there, right? Sitting on the ground and getting up and down off the ground makes a lot of sense there. Um, and when you go into our, our indigenous and historical movement traditions, 
you know, our, even our first people traditions, you'll see that there's a lot of smart thinking around how the body works and the things that we do to maintain the, the work of the body. Um, if someone just did sun salutation every day, it's a pretty damn good start. You're going to touch a lot of positions. And, uh, you know, it's like brushing and flossing your teeth. Is that, is that going to get you the dance? No, but it's not going to keep you from going to the dance. Then we can start to say, well, can you breathe in that position? You know, one of the, I just made a piece of content yesterday that I think one of the easiest things people can do is learn how to develop long-term sustained force in certain positions, which is an isometric. That's the language we use. So instead of just bending over and touching your toe, even if you did like a classic hurdler stretch, right? Whatever that means, stretch, whatever that the hell that is. Um, I can get you to at least contract the muscles at the ends of your range and get you to breathe there for a minute. And boy, I'm going to give your brain, your brain's going to be like, look at this. We own this shape. We can breathe here. We can generate force here. So those are the first orders of business that I drop in. Can you contract in the position where you're working? Can you control that? And the easy thing to do is drop in an isometric in whatever you're doing. And then two, can you breathe in that position? And if either of those conditions aren't met, then what are you doing? You're not, you know, you're being tortured. You're being pulled apart, right? So suddenly, I think if you dropped into Pilates or yoga or, or active release technique or strength counter, you're like, oh, I understand PNF. It doesn't matter what languages. You're like, oh, everything's coming back to two things pretty much. I'm either doing an isometric or I'm doing some eccentric iso te or, or tempo work where I'm slowing down. So the first order of business for us is skill acquisition, but we don't have to just stop there. And we aren't because I'm trying to get you to sleep more. I'm trying to get you to drink some water. So I'm always working at multiple systems simultaneously. Ideally, as a coach, I can come in and say, you know, oh, I see that you're squatting regularly and you're sleeping and eating food. Great. Then we can have the next conversation. But some of those things, you know, we see that people have these super friable, dry, crappy tissues. I'm like, maybe that's the first order of business. You should eat a fruit and vegetable. You know, you need to drink some water with some salt in it. Then we can really unlock your potential. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It does. When we are talking about and this is particularly pertinent. My, my fiance is just, um, she's 12 months out from ACL surgery and, um, oh, whatever they do with this squeeze, squeeze the old, um, Oh, I can't remember what it is. There's, um, something on the side, something on the lateral side of your knee that they pull and tighten when hypermobile people at the same time as the ACL to kind of, I think, suck it all oh. together essentially. Um, and that's been a, a gnarly journey for her. And there's yeah. potentially a, potentially some sort of shoulder, challenge that I might be having after an MRI. Um, all of that leads me to think like injury and, um, and surgery rehab. What are your protocols for, because like for creating safety, stability, security from a mental state and a physical state, like the, the link between those, I know that isn't really a question. It's just a jumble of words, but um, <laughs> would you be willing to run with that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> the first thing is, um, when I was talking about mobility in the beginning with breathing and contraction, I was just talking about position. And you see how suddenly mobility means I'm in pain, right? Mm. And how I manage that. And it, so suddenly the conversation is swung into, do I know how to self-soothe when something hurts? Well, it turns out a lot of the techniques around restoring position. And remember, if I improve your position, I improve your movement. If you're in pain and I lessen your pain, I'm lessening your pain what? So that you can restore position so you can move. So it always comes back to the reason we're trying to get people to desensitize or self-soothe or heal is so that we can move again. So that's really the, always the goal. So 
when you look at it from that perspective, then any technique style that improves movement efficiency, movement economy, and enables me to move is a fair game technique and the and a fair game tool, which means I have my own set of tools that I like. And if you don't like them, as long as your tools are doing the same thing, super cool. I just happen to think that when we get people into better physiologically, more stable functional positions, oftentimes their pain gets better. And that may be just simply because you're moving differently and the brain recognizes this new pattern as threat-free, simple, cool. Um, when we're realizing that people are in pain, there's a lot of things that we can steal from that performance side. Isometrics, you know, dressing trigger points or isometrics, um, contract, relax, addressing soft tissue, which maybe is blood flow or desensitization or decongestion. All of those things can be happening in there. If you lay on a roller and flex your quad, I've actually just figured out a sneaky way to do this really localized loading. It's just a different kind of loading that's happening there. You're doing isometrics, right? You're getting movement without motion, but it's just a sneaky way of loading a tissue on that spot. So no wonder that that turns out to be very effective. For when we're training around rehab or injury, this ends up being a lot more complicated because the real question is, what were the behaviors, were there any behaviors that I engaged in that could have prevented this or changed my outcome or get, made me more durable or more or less susceptible to this, right? Hypohydration, over, overreaching, um, you know, too much change in volume, those things. Um, we tend to believe that if we can control for the variables of what we keep talking about, these environmental variables and movement quality variables, people, and we, you know, manage your volume, you're pretty, pretty durable. You can get, we can get a lot more out of you than we think we can. When your injury or status post surgery, the first order of governing body is you're either going to heal at the rate of a human being or you're going to heal slower than that. So there's no such thing as a, as a fast healer. You either heal at the rate of a human being. And by the way, that's all the same within a few days. There's no such thing. You're, again, you're either sl healing slowly because you're inflamed and your tissues are congested and swollen and you're not moving. And, but, you know, if we maximize for those things and account for those things, then really what we're doing is just saying, hey, how do we progressively load the tissues during these tissue healing phases so that we don't disrupt sort of the new cakes that are just setting? So we know, for example, you know, that ACL is really grown in at 12 to 14 weeks. Everything's super stable. But it's going to take a year before that thing's really ready to go and 18 months because it takes that long for the tissues to really set up, the fascia to be reorganized, the, the tissues to be fully matured. And we know that because when we send out athletes to the pitch, when they don't have that time, they're more likely to get re-injured, right? And so ultimately, we, I, for example, if, if we, I don't use a lot of fancy corrective exercises, just not in my language. And I felt like that was really covered well by so many experts. What I ended up doing was using regression and progression of the movements that we're using in the gym, because that's a universal language that everyone speaks. And instead of using corrective exercises, we use these regression progressions of our exercise so we can continue to say, hey, rehab, back to the Olympics. We're just still pressing overhead the whole time, right? And there's so many ways to, to get around that. But what we're doing is modifying for position. We're modifying for speed. We're modifying for cardio respiratory demand. We're modifying for load. And ultimately, the return to sport is, and guess what? In ACL recovery, this is, this is very interesting. Um, 
one of our uh, coaches is a USC, University of Southern California, best PT school in the world, sports resident. And all the best metrics of return to sport for ACL injuries are subjective readiness scores. Do you feel ready to play? Yes, I do. Do you feel like your knee will allow you to do the things you know you need to do? No, I don't. Not jump, not triple test, not anything, because the brain knows if the body's ready. Yes or no. You know what I mean? And that's, I think, when you you come back into that, then why are these systems, why would they ever be wired apart? They're not. We just happen to know how long it takes for a sprain to knit itself or how long for, a, you know, an Achilles to grow in for or for a bone to heal into a an implant. We just happen to know those things. But again, I would argue that the same sets of techniques and tools we're using for performance decongestion, jumping Normatec boots, using NMES to decongest the tissues, soft tissue work <clears throat> to lay DOMs and keep tissues from being stiff. All of those techniques can be applied to injury and surgery and applied to going faster and doing more volume. Yeah, that's um, where I'm interested in that is because like part of it will be sometimes your brain lies to you, right? Sometimes it does. It's not always perceiving the same information like or as like the example well, I, I being... Would, if you're if you're if you have fear for sure i would believe Mm -hmm. that right yeah but i would say that you're just not listening your brain Mm -hmm. is perceiving what's going on there's a lot in that in terms of your in previous injury history your belief effects around pain how you handle this culturally all of those things are important but i would say that your brain is pretty good If, if you your brain saying don't put the leg down then we haven't done enough behaviors to get you to your brain to think this is a safe behavior that then we get back to reason. yeah yeah then we get back to proof like we're proving to ourselves that it is safe and it is um yeah a, a good thing to do it's interesting that you're, you're talking about like the it's, a, it's basically a conversation that we have time and time again on this show it's like trusting that sensation and we're talking to previous um olympic swimmer uh caroline burkle on the episode before you oh, yeah. she was talking about that um yeah she is incredible and she's just talking about that kind of being pushed for splits and quantifiable data the whole time. Um, and she was someone who just responded to that feeling of performing and that feeling. And like, just, she got so far away from that. She had to learn to trust yeah. that again and trust that kind that's of right. sensation. So it's, it seems like we're pushed away from that. moment. we're pushed away from that's a that. coaching. That's a coaching failure. It's a coaching failure and an athlete failure. Um, it's a coaching failure because it's easy to track those things and, and prove mm-hmm. that what I'm doing is working. It's really messy to have a hard conversation with an athlete and say, how are you feeling today? You know, yeah. especially when they're tell a child. Me more, tell me more about that. You know, exactly, exactly right. At some point, you know, there's a reason, you know, if you look at some of these, these other traditions of how they teach skills, it's play-based and so much repetition and so much practice. And, you know, was it the Norwegians who stopped even like keeping score until you were like 16? Like it's legal to like keep score and compete. You know what I mean? Like they, their goal is to keep everyone in sport and de-emphasize. Well, we we scored more goals, ergo we're better. And you know, not only do coaches have to become better at understanding humans, but athletes have to take it on themselves now to become much better athletes. Well, if you're stressed out and coming to practice, how are you going to play? Why aren't you handling your crap? at home. If you're poorly fueled before you go to practice, whose fault is that? So it's easy to be like, man, my program doesn't work. My failure, I just jump around and flit around. But, you know, also we have to start at much earlier age where Burkle is saying, 
you know, hey, I feel like something's off or and I can be vulnerable in front of a coach or I can have this conversation, man, that's reforming sport, isn't it? Right. And those are those are conversations that have to happen for decades so that you can get to a place where you can trust the athlete. I don't feel like this or this is not happening or how much do you need to be able to handle this volume? And then also agreeing on metrics of performance. You know, if Caroline's like, hey, uh, this is, you know, I, I'm swimming below this. I don't know why. Then we can become curious about that. But now what we're realizing is that it's a much more of a conversation. And, and we say this about clinicianship. Expert clinicianship is a conversation between patient and and provider. But that's what that, like, and that means it's a compromise. I'm not some patriarchal guy who's like, you're going to do this. You know, you agree what you think is the best for you. I have input into what I think is the best for you. We're going to come up with a compromise of what you think you'll actually do. You know, that's what good coaching is. And that means the athlete has to own that. I'll give you an example. You know, England, um, you know, and the, the England soccer and footy and the athletes there are becoming much more sophisticated and really pushing all of their performance staffs. And they're pushing on nutrition and they're pushing on recovery and mindset because they're realizing that not only can they play better, but they play longer. And that might only mean millions of pounds to those athletes. And maybe they don't hate it as much at the same time. And they, they come out intact. Right. So that Uh it's not like, Hey, you, you know, it's really cool that we, uh, you fought the lions in the arena, but now we're going to give your bodies up to them too. You know, we don't, we shouldn't have to do that. And, um, you know, that is a worthy thing to work on for the rest of our lives, right? Is to get people to feel and to trust and to make that part of this conversation. And one of the things that I would point everyone to who's listening is to look at Brett Bartholomew's work, The Art of Coaching. He's really saying, hey, we have to become much better on the human communication connection side if we're really going to unlock, you know, power, potential, and you know, sidestep a whole bunch of dysfunction because it's like so dysfunctional. Coaching is so dysfunctional. Sport is so dysfunctional. Yeah. And like, I think there's so many, just speaking from personal experience as well and, and knowing the local community and maybe it's a British cultural thing. There's so many coaches. So I think getting to coaches and they want to, um, or they fear being vulnerable in front of their athletes. They don't want to be that person who stands up and potentially risks a lack of trust, but the opposite happens, obviously, sure. um, where they, sure. they don't expose themselves. But like, there's there's that need to open themselves up, be more authentic. That people have such a, a distaste for, like the there's like the, yeah. Well, it, remember, everyone comes from somewhere, right? Mm. Let me use an example that I, I you know I hinted at earlier because uh, I just happened to know it personally. The All Blacks do a lot of coaching early in the week. And then towards the end of the week, coaches coach less and less and less. And then they're there to assist the players who are running the plan, running the program. So they've been during the week, they come up with a plan. Players learn the plan, understand the plan, and the coaches support the players and execute the plan. It's not the coaches coach their ass off during the, the game, micromanaging, telling the athletes where to swim. Right. And if you understand anything about motor, le- motor learning, then you're like, oh, delayed knowledge of results. And, you know, you have to let someone experiment and make mistakes and be able to self-correct. And they have to have that ability to perceive what's going on. And then the coach just happens to be this super curricular set of eyes that maybe perceive things that the athlete can't see. So it gives them some data so the athlete can make the, the better decision. But at the end of the week, it is on the athlete. So the athlete should know what she needs to do to get prepped. You know, I was having a conversation with an all-American swimmer and 
And she was like, you know, coach doesn't want me to swim the day before meet, but I feel like I just need these touches. I was like, is that what your coach said? Your coach said, don't get in the pool and feel good as an athlete and practice and feel like you have connected and be in the water and working. Is that what your coach said? Or your coach said, don't swim a thousand meters, you know, you know, you know, 5,000 yards because, you know, he doesn't want you to be tired. She's like, Oh, so she started getting in the pool again. And she was telling the coach too, communicating, Hey, I'm just going to jump in the pool, get a touch. The coach was like, cool. And, and she was like, wow, I completely misread what understood what the coach was trying to protect. And that was just a communication thing. So this athlete certainly knows herself is able to say, Hey, I think I need this to be successful. Good. Let's, let's run an experiment. And lo and behold, she became a really good swimmer. Have you noticed a change and an improvement in emotional intelligence in athletes over the part well, over your career? Uh, I will say that yes, if I, um, I think because winning is so difficult now, um, I think there were, we had fewer participants. We didn't have an example of the VHS upright, like where we could start recording things and watching things we could practice and then emulate and learn. And, you know, if you look at the evolution of like uh, extreme skateboarding or half pipes is a good example of just like, holy crap, where were we 10 years ago? Where were we five years ago? Now the things that they're, you know, that they're doing. So on the one hand, when we had kids who like did a little lifting, who were stronger and ate a little better, man, they were years ahead of everyone else. And now everyone's doing that. And so that's not a competitive advantage anymore because everyone is strong and everyone's powerful and everyone's easy. So athletes are coming to, realize more and more that the limiting factor is their brain and their mindset and their readiness. Why do you think that whoop readiness score is so great for people and bad for people, but great for people potentially? Because it really gives us some insight into connecting behaviors with, with physiologic markers, right? Where I can start to say, hey, I took a bath, you know, I did some rolling, I slept better, I could work harder today, right? That's pretty cool. So what we are starting to see is that I have athletes who are very, very mature and seeking that maturity out. But I also had a generation of superstars that I'm part of because I'm Gen X and I'll put our, there were always athletes, great athletes before us, but Gen X athletes are in this cusp where we had mountains of dysfunction in our families and our lives. And we use sport to cope with that. And that really led to really good outcomes for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so eventually, you know, the things that got you there, the things that keep you there, and it comes back to, do I feel safe? Do I feel loved? Do I feel protected? Now, you know, what are the intrinsic drivers? We have to be talking about that. And more importantly, doing it, not just talking about it, right? We don't need to talk about feelings at some point. I know that you don't want to come in and work really hard today, but we're going to run because you're a professional athlete and so we have to do. And it doesn't mean it has to be drudgery, but, you know, trust me, all athletes would rather sit on the couch and watch Netflix than, you know, suffer. It seems like there is such a hard balance to strike with the, um, you bet. With, with the kind of the fire, the pushing, the intensity and like fear can be a powerful motivator and driver, like that aggression oh, yeah. that comes from it. Um, or the fear I, of uh, failure, failure, fear of death, mm-hmm. you know, fear of success. Yeah, yeah. Fear of success as well. You know, we're interesting. We're, we're watching this really incredible biker right now. Um, I think one of the hardest and greatest sports in the world right now is cross-country mountain biking. It is so hard to win. And if you think you're like, I can ride a bike, you can't. 
and you can't be at the limit, full gas for 90 minutes doing very technical things, gap jumps, and then also racing. I would, I would profess that you don't have the physiology, the skills, and then you would just get killed by the racing alone. So it's really hard to win. And the, the people who are dominating the sports right now, top 10 men and women are some of the best athletes I've ever seen. They're incredible. And they're what they're doing. But there's an athlete right now named Rebecca McConnell from Australia who has been top 10 for a decade. She's really good, but she just made a big change in her life. She separated from a partner, changed her coach. And I suspect none of those things happened radically that changed and altered her programming, but suddenly she's unbeatable. And she went from being top 10 and sometimes being on fifth podium to suddenly she's going to win the world cup this year. And that is the quintessential power of the brain that if we can tap into that through belief effects, through through these behavior pieces, through feeling loved and supported, through self-deception, whatever it is, I don't I don't care. I just care that it's observable, measurable, and repeatable. Like right? because otherwise, what we see is, man, you get hot, and then I don't know why I got hot, and then now you're wearing your hat inside out, and you're trying to replicate something you did when you were 16, and you were trying to get to some weight. Because at that time, was the, that weight that you weighed was the first time you had success at your sport. And, you know, that's the problem is that we don't really know how to deconstruct these things. If you, if you take Supple Leopard and you look at the cover of the book, the cover is a computational leopard pattern. So here's this phenomenon in, in the world, in the wild, of a leopard pattern, right? That the leopard makes spontaneously, it's built in. But the, the metaphor of the book is how do I deconstruct that into knowable data, into knowable components to try to replicate or understand the whole? That's why it's a computational leopard pattern. It's not an understanding that it's always an incomplete understanding or incomplete model of the whole, the miracle of the whole. And some of this <clears throat> to win is sometimes a little bit of miracle, a little bit of grace, a little bit of luck, you know, all of those things go together. I mean, and that's why I think sport is so compelling. But when we just tell, continue to tell the lie that whoever works the hardest wins, that's horse crap. Yeah. Um, to go back to the lifestyle changes, it's we're a human before we're an athlete. And like, I find myself telling this to athletes so many times, it's like you're a human first, like you, you've got only so much willpower, only so many choices that you can make per day. And if you're relying on those to stay in a relationship that you don't want to be in or all these other hugely comp or deal with like the loss of a loved one, all these things like that is going to affect your performance. There's no way around that. Like maybe it's positively initially because you get that anger and that fuel, but like there's, there's got to be some work outside of it too. There's got to be some work on like who you are before what you do. Um, I don't know her personally, but Jessica Fox is one of the greatest whitewater slalom athletes ever. And one of the greatest athletes in Australia. <clears throat> and you know, only just watching her again, I don't know her personally. I don't know what the reality is, but she is engaged in constant play has seems to have really deep ties and committed ties to her family. Mm. And I'm like, wow, that's a really hard person to beat. <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. her dad was, a uh, you know, is, you know, Sir Richard Fox. Her mom is like a very talented woman paddler world champion. She seems to just create a bubble where she can rinse, wash, repeat and practice and out practice everyone because she feels loved and supported. Here's another example. Um, I was watching a documentary about this, this French, the free divers 
um, who, you know, and there's a guy who lives in the Bahamas. I forget where he's from, but he said that when he was having an argument with his girlfriend, he couldn't hold his breath as long. So if there's something going on with his family at all, it interrupted how his brain was CO2 tolerant. And he could perceive that if he felt unsafe or unloved or some dissonance in his life, he wouldn't, he wouldn't just hold his breath and fall well. So if holding your breath and falling, you know, in a, in a big pool is susceptible to, you know, the stress of life, then think about what the average person is dealing with as they try to unload. It's really remarkable. And it's why we have to look at first principles. Are you sleeping? Are you eating whole food? Do you have deep and meaningful relationships? It's going to be really hard to win if you don't. And you can, you can be built on fire and hate for a minute. That's that Joseph, you know, Smith, you know, Joseph Campbell allegory is, you know, the dark side, you know, is always a short game. It's not the long game. Well, you, yeah, it's kind of the, the similar thing to the, the same thing that happened to Kurt Cobain or Amy Winehouse. It's like you can do incredible things in a short time, um, but it doesn't last very long. Well, and remember, um, in those things, you know, it, it helps to have this sort of objective pers- perspective, this, this removed, not a, omniscient observer, but understanding why was that person self-soothing? You know, some of it is like, man, I just did heroin one time as, as, as a whim and then I loved it and that's super fun. And, you know, that happens, um, but it happens less frequently than people think. I'm trying to make myself feel better so I can perform. I'm trying to self-soothe. And suddenly you're like, oh, exercise, nutrition, these all can be mechanisms of self-soothing, right? Where, you know, suddenly, you know, we don't look at people. I live in Marin County, just Northern California, north of the city north of San Francisco, and we have the highest uh, concentration of adult binge drinking in California. Because suddenly we have very, very stressed people who have a little bit of money, um, upper middle class, and they drink so much wine, it's insane. And what we see, though, is, you know, is that just because we're 19 and partying? No, it's because those, those people are trying to cope with the stresses of being kind of modern humans. And suddenly you're like, well, THC, opiates, bourbon, food control, they're all coping or self-soothing mechanisms so that I can feel better, so that I can interact with the world differently. And when you start to look at those things, some of those self-soothing or you know, mechanisms are a little healthier. Oh, you go to spin class? Cool. You know, don't confuse your spin addiction with healthy, you know what I mean, lifestyle. It's just a different way of coping than than drugs. But, uh, you know, we're all trying to make ourselves feel better so that we can go out and interact and interrelate to our environment, to our pe- ourselves and more effectively. And boy, I mean, suddenly you're like, well, where do I start? You know, because the things we're talking about here seem to be very complicated. Not very complicated. Every day in, in our sessions, we circle up, we look each other in the eye, we shake hands, we ask each other how we're doing. These are people who've been training together for 10 years. We still shake hands and say hello. We have a formal ritual. We're like, how's it going? We all kind of greet each other. We, you know, not just you bring your baggage in. I need you to come here. We all talk about what our intention is. This is our goal. Anything going on? What's happening in the world? And then when we finish, we all come back together and say, how'd that go? What'd you feel? What'd you learn? You know, a a chance to integrate. That's how suddenly someone's like, wow, I felt really seen and really safe and really protected and really acknowledged. And now we can go. And then, by the way, you should probably eat some protein, you know. Um, 
Arsenal used to do this thing, and they maybe still do it, where they started delivering. Herod's would deliver bespoke, incredible meals to their players, right? These are 22-year-old millionaires. And some people at the, you know, at the front office were like, why are we delivering dinner to millionaires? Like, this is crazy. And they were like, well, it turns out that if you deliver fruit, you know, fruit and meat and vegetables to young athletes, they won't eat chips and pizza. <laughs> Right? They won't go smash a bunch of curry and which is not wrong, but it's just less effective, you know? And so what they realize is that it's, it's when we start shaping the world and controlling for first principles, then we can have better outcomes without having to make another decision. And now we're into really another piece. How do I set up my world? So it doesn't take all this willpower to just do the thing. I set up my world so that I it's effortless and training is fun. And I come to the, come to the river, I come to the pitch and those are my mates and I get to explore and be creative and then they get together so we can launch an attack on whew, that. That's worthy of trying to understand because we can apply those principles to other aspects of our life, other areas of our life, business relationships. And so suddenly sport becomes a great diagnostic tool and a great learning platform where we can really maybe potentially unlock human potential it's about 10 points that i want to jump off from from that sorry sorry <laughs> no, no 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 it's, it's fantastic which one do i want to go for that's the thing um there's like the the rat park study um which i'm sure you're aware of of the um rats being given the, all the addiction studies were based on the rats who were given water laced with cocaine and if they've got nothing else in the the cage they hit that over and over and over and over and over until they severely inhibit themselves or die and like that and then they do it because that, that proved addiction apparently but when you put them in a cage with other rats the social connection when you put them in with toys and play um, when you gave them everything a rat would want, they most of them hit that once and then never touched it again and would go back to just standard water. So it's that addiction piece and non-serving behaviors is like more complex than drug equals hormonal response or neurological response equals yeah, repetition. Um, and like that that's must right. be, it, it must be on the other side, it must be a similar thing with forming positive habits about, movement practices mobility like if you're in that safe environment if you have that men mentality and mindset and connection that is going to encourage those kind of behaviors more often it seems kind of trite to say you know ask an adult do you like running and they'll be like i hate running you know tell me more about that and they're like well it doesn't feel good you know and i'm like oh that's really reasonable you you run it doesn't feel good hurts your body but what if I taught you to run? What if running had application or a skill, right? It wasn't just like I'm running to get skinny, you know, exactly as you're saying, you know, <clears throat> the real question now is we can peel back another layer and say, well, what if I want to be a durable person and I want to be a hundred years old and functional, what's the minimum effective dose of this exercise training? You know, I want athletes to have more free time to paint and read and think and mess around, not to foam roll and percussion gun and eat and meal prep and be robots. Like, you know, um, I want to get, do the least amount in the gym as possible with the most fun so that we can have the most time off. Um, one of my favorite coaches in the world, and I highly recommend everyone read his biography. His name is Anson Dorrance. Anson Dorrance is the most successful coach in the history of coaching. And he coaches the women's University of North Carolina soccer team, their football program. And he has made more World Cup 
basically invented women's national soccer team in this, in this country, has put out more superstars on the planet than you can imagine, has won more national championships than any other coach in any other sport. And he, how he runs his program is really amazing. And some of the things that they work their asses off, but then they're goofy off the field. That when they're on the pitch, they have standards that the girls have to hit the women who train with him. And if they don't hit, they get punished by their own teams. And I don't mean punished. I mean, punished physically. Like it's really difficult to keep up and, and you know, you're going to have to run more, but he doesn't care if you show up hungover and you're a human being, just do your work, handle. So there's standards where we all agree that this is what our standards are going to be. But then every match, every game, sorry, those are all true also, but every practice is a chance to compete where they actually track all the metrics. So it's 90 minutes because that's how long a, a match is. That's how long his practices are. But they are scripted, formal, intentional. They try things. They iterate. But they, every, they track everything. So you and I run for the ball. You win for the ball. You win the ball. You get a point. I don't get a point. And so they can actually – they've created – he calls it the competitive cauldron where they're constantly playing and competition is a form of play. And suddenly everything matters, the intensity and the density of that training. And then when they're off, they're off. And I really respect that, you know, because what we don't want to do is we want someone to be an athlete and drag that whole athletic experience through 24 hours of their life. Otherwise, they're not going to be human. So how are you going to organize and set up your life so that you can have this really meaningful relationship with your community, with your family, with your loved ones? And some of the sports that we, you know, engage with, Tour de France, it does take five hours to ride from them, right? So you better have your stuff organized in a way where you can come back on the other side and still be a human being. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Bit of a theme change, Kelly. What's been your biggest mental challenge and how did you overcome it? Uh, I, um, you know, I think continuing to talk about my feelings it's, you know, being vulnerable is, uh, is a good one. I, you know, um, I'm sure you could ask my wife. I have a ton of things I'm overcoming. Um, uh, in our, my family, no one talked about their feelings and no one was wrong. And those things can serve you very well when you're hucking yourself off a, a big waterfall or paddling in the World Cup because you can just, you know, dissociate, not talk about your stress, not talk about, acknowledge what's going on. So now I have all these, I've done all this work and I have all these feelings and it's complicated and I feel anxious sometimes. I'm like, what's that feeling I'm feeling? Anxiety. I kind of liked my old self, which was like, Shh, it's fine. I got this. You know, I put the door down and huck and then uh, that wasn't very healthy. So, you know, personally being more in touch with feeling nervous and anxious, uh, talking about, you know, being vulnerable. I think those things, you know, have made me a much better human and a much more empathic person you know when did you realize that that was something that you needed or wanted to change uh just didn't always work in my relationships you know and um and you know i think being married to an amazing woman and having children you know you suddenly realize you're like you know i i have some things i need to work out about my family (laughs) you know and i think you know the you know i had a missing father my father was basically um he's passed so i can talk crap about him he uh, was like the great Santini. He was uh, a fourth, third generation Irish immigrant kid um, who had generations of father, son, alcoholism, trauma. And my dad coped the way he could and created a totally dysfunctional relationship with my mother and me. 
you know, um, he was captain of the high school, you know, captain of the college uh, quarterback. He flew at fours. He was a pilot. He, he was, he was just a wild man and yet just driven by the damage of his father. So did not have a good relationship with me and uh, you know, just having to work some of that anger out, you know, that uh, you know, I think some of the things that got me here were being a sociopath, uh, having a single mother who told me I was probably, you know, better than I was. And then also needing to prove to my missing father that I was worthy. You know, like th that's a recipe for success right there. But it's also a recipe for massive dysfunction. I think early on I dealt with um, all of my desire to move and anxiety by exercising and competing. And I love that. And so I found, I think the reason I'm not addicted to cocaine is uh, I found sport and I found training. It, those kind of environments they're fucking awful but they give you something that very that makes you special and makes you unique and gives you a perspective well, that you wouldn't have gathered it's, elsewhere it's one way it's the long way around the yeah. barn for sure <laughs> you know but uh there's how many you know how much lost opportunity and capacity there so it's interesting to run this experiment with my daughters where you know i juliet my wife is my she's the ceo of our business she's my best friend uh, we love to play together. We've been married. We're almost 20 years together marriage. We've been together over 20 years. Um, you know, it's, it's getting better and better. And uh, our kids live, I mean, there's plenty of trauma and in their lives. I mean, they're COVID generation. Um, they're going to be durable and resilient. But what happens if, you know, how, how do you unlock performance without having to go and find trauma to do it? That's really the, one of the things. Do so you have to be a, an asshole? to win and be the best. I don't think you do. You know, I don't, I don't think you do. I think uh, that's one way to do it, to get yourself psyched up and listen to heavy metal and hate everyone, but it may not be the, the most sustainable and the most reliable. So with our girls, it's really interesting to, to you know, to, what happens if we cover all those things, they sleep and they eat food and they're in a great community and they feel loved and have all the resources. How do you, you know, get them to have the same drive or some drive that isn't based on you know trying to solve a you know trauma in their lives. That's a great question. Yeah, I'll let like, you know how it turns out. <laughs> yeah, give me thirty years, and then you can uh, you can let me know like how everything went. Yeah, it's like it's a conversation I always used to have with Ashim, my old landlord. We used to talk about like because he had just had kids, and it was that point of, like they're going to have a comfortable life. They're going to be safe, and for everything that I know, like they're going to have like a, a loving environment. It's like how do I intentionally give them? as much hardship as they can tolerate, but none, no more, no more that's we go, unnecessarily dangerous. We go skiing in a blizzard. Mm -hmm. yeah. We, you know, our family spends, you know, my wife is a uh, three-time world champion, whitewater paddler in her own right. And we spend a lot of time on the river and take your 12 year old, um, you know, maybe she's 11, take your 11 year old on the Grand Canyon for 18 days, make her hike, make her be a deal hundred degree heat, have her be afraid of the big rapids and there's no way out going to come through that. And I think that that's the experiential piece where we can, we, you know, get in the sauna, get in the ice bath, get cold. Let's go compete. Let's go perform. There's so many ways where we can create discomfort. You know, let's be hungry. You know, when's the last time your kids were hungry? Like there's so many ways where we can do those things where we don't have to manufacture trauma. And man, it's already difficult enough just to be a, you know, my girls are, you know, cis hetero women. And, um, you know, their interpersonal relationships at school is going to be create plenty of trauma for them. You don't have to put trauma in front of your life 
what you can do is try to create the most stable person who can be the least perturbed by drama or trauma yeah. or or their lifestyle. Then, you know, it, it's it's interesting. We're seeing, um, you know, my my 17 year old loves to train because she loves to train now, you know, but it was like pulling teeth for her. We, we tested our kids genetics a long time ago. And, um, Caroline, my youngest, who is almost five ten, she's a mutant. She's a water polo goalie. I think she's, she's the athlete of the family. Like she, she could go all the way. She could be that good. Um, you know, she's 13. So what do I know? You know, who knows, but, um, her recovery scores are terrible her ability to handle huge amounts of volume and recover aren't great. So guess what Caroline does? She sleeps still to this day over 10 hours a night, like just sleep, 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 sleep. And if that kid doesn't sleep, it's all off. So she figured out early on, I have to sleep. Georgia, interestingly enough, is my 17 year old rising senior is such, she's a cruise missile of a human being. Like, I just can't wait to see what happens. She's just, she's amazing. And uh, she's captain of her team. Doesn't want to play in college. But Georgia's desire to train is like 20th percentile. My desire to train is a metric of my genetics, 99th percentile. I'm like, let's, let's go. What are we doing? It's because I basically have ADD, ADHD. But my other daughter wants to basically watch TV and bake. Like that's her jam, right? But, but she's also a great athlete. And now she's practiced enough and had enough feelings and got enough feedback that exercising feels good and I don't have to like get her off the couch and throw her into the yard. She's like, I really want a deadlift 300 by the time I graduate high school. I want to like, Hey, I want a hard conditioning piece. What should I do? And now the, the habits have set up where my kids know how to eat. They know how to fuel. They know how to, let me tell you a story of what I think the potential is. My, my 13 year old was at this water polo camp at the U S Olympic training center this last winter. And it's for, you know, and 13, whatever. Um, it's all the best 13 year old water polo players in the country go and she's a goalie and they do like 13 sessions in four days. It's an insane number of sessions that they're just hammering the girls. Maybe it's 11 session or four days, but they're, she did 10,000 long tosses with the water, you know, while swimming, throwing the ball down. And at the end of day two, her shoulder hurts. Isn't that funny? She did a thousand passes, volume ramps up, change in volume. And so she gets out of the pool and the physio there is like, they're like, talk to the physio, Olympic training center physio. And the physio gives her a bag of ice. And my daughter was just like, are you serious? Like, that's your solution, a bag of ice? And she's like, thanks. And, you know, in retrospect, of course, that physio doesn't know these girls, has her own job to manage. Da, da, da. So she gives, like, I want, I want to sell food. Here's a bag of ice again. But Caroline goes up. She's into the session. She uses an NMES device. So she decongests. It's just a muscle pumping device. She does a little scraping. She does a little soft tissue mobilization, rolls that out, gets a little non-threatening input, does some end range isometrics, return, boom, back in the pool the next day. And they're like, what happened? She's like, I, I handled it. And there's my 13-year-old handling her sho sore shoulder by herself. That's the future. And what you're going to see is that we have athletes who know how to understand their bodies and how not to freak out when that happens. And not, you know, handle their agency away. I'll suddenly like, oh, no, I'm in the physio. I'm a, a victim. Like, here's my 13 year old. like, nope, I got this. I want to get back in the pool. That's the potential. Yeah, that is sweet. And you're stressing their nervous system in a really productive way as well. Getting them cold, getting them. Like, yeah, that's awesome. I, I really love that. I like, really love that. That's something to remember as I go go to my and next what, stage of life. <laughs> well, I mean, it really is. And I'm, I'm really interested to see who they are as, end up being as women yeah. because they have every unfair advantage ever. Their mother is their mother. 
you know, these kids just are, they're savages. I just, I mean, good luck, you know? Um, there's a few questions I like to wrap things up with for Aaron. Um, first one, I I can't remember what you said the first time when we podcasted ago. Is like different name. I was in a different country, I think. Like, and um, I can't. And it was years ago, like six, seven years ago, something like that. What book have you gifted most? Oof, Apart from uh, your own. Besides Dune, um, I give Dune a lot. Dune is one of those books that changes consciousness for people. Hey man, that so happened like, to me. You, you you did say that last time, and I went away and yeah. read it, and I was like, "Oh, that can, that changed the way that I view reality." Yes, uh, I think that happens a ton. I think the book I've been talking about a lot lately, um, obviously, uh, *Sapiens* has come out since the last mm-hmm. time we talked. Um, I'm a huge Yuval Harari fan. That just helps us to understand sort of the history and what's going on. I really, if I could talk about the body the way Yuval Harari talks about. Mm humans that would be a goal mm-hmm. um david Epstein wrote a book wrote a book recently called uh last couple years called range which is about being a generalist and the secret superpower of being a generalist and not a specialist range is a really great book to read nice this could i'm gonna guess um be a whole another podcast episode but what habits do you perform for your own let's go for mental health and performance and mental performance too uh sleep 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 mm-hmm. so i can't talk about sleep enough um i also i'm fortunate enough to have a sauna in my and i so the two things that are just like standards the the more stressed i get the more sleep i get the more stressed i get the more time i spend in the sauna so that's you know that's those two things have been really my new like phrase or thinking is i'm like look the bigger the engine you better have bigger brakes you need bigger rotors and if you don't have mechanisms there's no such thing as balance let's just pretend that like let's throw that word out that I'm either at full gas or full brake. There's really very few in between. So I'll, as I'm speeding up and I'm slowing down, maybe those things intersect for a second where it looks like I'm in balance, but I'm either full on the gas or full on the brake. And I feel like I'm getting better and better at being full on the brake where I'm off and free associating and thinking and, you know, messing around more, more dicking around. That's what we call it. Nice. Dicking around is the way forwards. Um, it's quite difficult to develop that ability to stop being reactionary because like, I don't know about you, but when I get stressed, I'm like, I got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do. And it like the default pattern and maybe it's a societal default pattern that we just taught, but it's like to, to stress more, do more, sleep less and like keep my foot slammed on the floor accelerator wise. Um, That is really an artifact of our Prussian historical education where we control groups through more work. Like our indigenous selves, we work two to three hours a day. And then there's a lot of time to create art and music and interrelate and build relationships. And now we hold up work. You know, um, you know work makes you free has been everywhere used by the Nazis, but it's really a real old Prussian rep. Uh, Prussian, early German propaganda, it's like 1800s pre-Nazi, adopted by the Nazis. And you'll actually see that in Latin and transferred everywhere. But it was really about a society that, you know, could work, could, was docile. I mean, I sound like, a, you know, conspiracy person right now, but the goal is not to continue to work and work and work. The goal is to, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of work in your life coming up. Oh, work that you can't get out of and should not get out of. But 
you have to be off. You have to create a life where you're not just doing busy work and then you're not using your only sense of timing to watch TV or to entertain or self-soothe with social media. You have to go experience and feel and interact and play and learn and drive. And that means you need to be on and then you need to be off. So I think if we can be more efficient when we're on, better, and setting ourselves up so that when we're off, we actually have the mental resources and the energy to go be interested in the world. I suppose that works on a seasonal pattern as well. Like there's going to be months sure. where you're just like hammering it. Like I saw you just like totally. trying to get your 10K steps in like first thing in the morning the other day. Um, and like, yeah, that's well, got to happen sometimes because there's the only choice. That, and that was the only, the rest of the day was shot. Like I was yeah. like, well, I'm not doing anything today. So yeah. what do I do on that day? You know, you know, I just, um, you know, I want everyone to know who's listening to this, that I have two daughters. I have a business. I have a whole bunch of people that I feed with our business. I, I feel stressed about that. You know, during the pandemic, we lost the gym, we, you know, because of uh, regulations and not getting help. And we were spending, our rent was $24,000 a month and uh, our landlords were terrible. And we were just, we couldn't even enter the building, but we could still pay them $24,000 a month. So we shut the gym down, but I ended up developing hiccups for 11 days. So I had hiccups. Where I was hiccuping five to six times a minute for 11 days. I lost 14 pounds. Uh, I went on Thorazine. Ultimately, it was like gabapentin, like a horse trank dose of gabapentin that knocked it down and healed. But it was a ulcer basically from being so stressed about all the people that worked with me, this thing that I had built. So, I mean, no one is immune. I had all of the resources available to me and I still burned all my stomach and developed hiccups. So, you know, it, the, the goal is to set yourself up so that we can handle these times of peak stress, death, uncertainty, loss of job, changes in relationship status, control what you can control. And then when the opportunity comes, open it up again. Yeah. Because if you didn't have those ingrained patterns and perspectives, you would have been a write-off then or oh. close to. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have been very useful to my family yeah. already yeah. with, uh, being disabled with hiccups for multiple days made me not very useful to my family. So, you know, I, I think that's, what's really interesting. I, I think also, you know, lastly that, you know, I'm, I'm almost, I'm turning 49 this year. Um, what am I trained for? I'm trained to be useful. I'm trained to transform my society. I'm trained to be useful to my family. Um, this idea of elite performance for a 49 year old guy who doesn't compete, you know, I, I compete whenever I can, but it's just fun. I don't, I'm not a professional. So, you know, there's some, some tolerance in the system. Do you know what I mean? Like this weekend we went away and I had three days in a row where I couldn't train. I'm like, well, I'm just going to control my diet then these next three days. So that's what I focused on. And I was like, well, I'm going to get as many steps as I can and eat as well as I can. And guess what? My fitness will be there the next day. You know what I mean? I, just because I wasn't on my perfect split at age 49 on Thursday in May, I'm, come on, it doesn't matter. Where can people find more about the Ready State and where can people follow you? Uh, if you already aren't just have turned this podcast off, um, <laughs> we are at the ready state um, on the socials at the ready state. Um, if you want to see what my family's going around, you follow at Juliet Starrett, um, S-T-A-R-R-E-T-T. Uh, Kelly Starrett is a good old Irish name. So Juliet Starrett is, uh, is my wife. So I like to say I'm not on social media. Um, I comment on social media, but if you want to see how we live our lives and what's going on, follow my wife for sure. Yeah. Um, Julia is, uh, in, I, there's something about her that you, 
you get through social media that she's a good person. Like, and I'm, I'm not just saying that because she's your wife. Like, it's she's just, just, it's just this, a filter. It's just a filter. Yeah. <laughs> is, it? is it? She's horrible behind scenes. I'm like the broken anchor of the family keeping her yeah. family, Really, like that, She probably could have been successful. I like to point out because we work together. I'm like, you know, you may be smarter and went to a better university and law school, but you make the same amount of money. You know, I always point out, I'm like, you know, so, you know, being a, being a, a dirtbag kayaker, uh, it pays off in the end if you marry the right person. <laughs> That's the place to wrap up a show. <laughs> Thank you Pleasure. so much, man. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Limitless Athlete Podcast. Before you head off, I have a quick favor to ask you. Please take a moment to head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave a very kind review. It really helps us get better guests. It really helps us um, reach more athletes like yourself. And it kind of helps us keep on putting out, hopefully, useful content for you. So if you could head over there, even if it's just clicking that five-star button, um, but particularly writing some nice words, we would, and me personally, massively appreciate it. Um, we love doing this and it's just the best fun for me personally so yeah i'd massively appreciate it if you could um, head over to spotify apple Podcasts, wherever you get your um, podcast from and leave a five-star review if you're feeling kind